Welcome back to You Be the Judge. This is our fourth lesson, and boy, oh boy, do we have a class tonight. All right, I want to start off with a story. Story goes that there was a town that needed a new rabbi. For whatever reason, the towns need new rabbis. Once in a while it happens, so the town needed a new rabbi. So the synagogue board goes over to the president of the board to create or to head the search committee to find a new rabbi. And the board comes up with these qualifications, with these qualities. Number one, the new rabbi should be God-fearing. Number two, he should be truthful. Number three, he should be kind and compassionate. Number four, he should not care about money. All right. So the president is sent on this mission. The president of the board is sent by the rest of the board on this mission. president comes back a few weeks later and he says, I've interviewed a lot of candidates. I've met a lot of people. I've checked a lot of resumes. And I can find all of the qualities, all of the qualifications. I can find candidates with all of the other criteria except for someone who is not interested, who doesn't care about money. The board says to the president, keep on looking for the right money. You can find that too. All right, my friends, that was a joke. Uh, this is lesson four. Of, I should probably stick to the, uh, to the teachings, right? That's what you're saying. Don't quit your day job, Rabbi. Netflix special. Yeah, really bad rabbi jokes. Um, I don't mind if, anybody's, uh, if anybody from Netflix is, uh, is listening or watching. Let me know. Happy to oblige. So today's class is all about the intersection between law and ethics. Because in the Jew, as we'll see tonight, in the Jewish system of law, you have an interesting dualistic model where there's an emphasis put on the law as well as the ethical considerations. See, typically there's a, there's a, uh, there's a gap, there's a gulf between law and ethics. In most systems, the law is the law, ethics, uh, that's another conversation. But in Judaism, it's a little bit different. And I kind of want to, to, to kind of lead into this conversation and to engage in this topic. I'll ask you a question and jump in. Jump in on this. Feel, get, get that unmute button ready. By the way, um, uh, life hack or um, trick. I don't know what trick, whatever. A little uh, pro tip. There you go, pro tip. If you're, if you're on a laptop, you could hit the space bar. And the space bar, if you're muted, space bar unmutes you as long as you're holding it down and then you let it go. At least it used to do that. Anyway, it, it should do that. Um, unmute, weigh in on this question, whether the space bar, whether the unmute button, either way, the question is as follows. How would you describe the role of a judge? How would you define a judge? Jump in. Judge. Let's go. Arbitrator. Arbitrator, good. Give me something else that we don't, good. But now, how do you define arbitrator? So give me, give me another word. Give me a word that, uh, yeah. Biased. Balanced. Good. Knows the law. Good. Interpretation. prejudice. Okay, good. Mashiach would be good. Mashiach would be, okay, good. I, heard, I think I, somebody said, um, wait, what was it? Somebody said something that I, that I, I forgot. Interpretation of the law. Interpretation of the law. Good. Good. What else? The role of a judge. Finder of fact. Mm. Finder of fact. Good. Arbiter. Arbiter. Okay, good. Good. Sentence. Sentencing. Sentencing. Excellent. Steve. 
No. Um, who else is something? Let's go. Jump in. Last chance. The gates are closing. Knowledgeable of the law. Knowledgeable of the law. Excellent. All right. Now let's shift gears. I'm going to ask a similar question. What's the role of a rabbi? What's the role? I'm, honestly, I've been a rabbi for a few years, and, and, and I don't even know. So I'm asking for advice. <laughs> Say it again. Certainly know the law. Okay, good. What else? Not know where to find it. Okay. To the complaints of the Oh, nice. Good. Arbiter. Arbiter. Good. Make solemn. Good. Okay. What else? Inspire Judaism. Excellent. Good. Oh, nice. Okay. What else? Oh, a rabbi doesn't like money. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It goes back to a joke from the beginning of the class about money. It's uh, I'll 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 call you later and give you the joke. Okay, thank you, Larry. Pleasure. So good, 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 good. My rabbi was giving a class on halachos pesach. That's why I came in late. Nice, nice. Okay, um, sorry. No worries. So. You know, when you think about the role of a judge versus the role of a rabbi, most of us think of a judge as someone who determines the law, determines the facts, you know, the arbiter decides, you know, what, what the law, what the legal consideration is in any given case. And that's very valid. That's valid. It makes a lot of sense. But when we think of the role of a rabbi, um, some other considerations typically come to mind. A rabbi is not just a judge. Not just someone who decides halacha, Jewish law, but a rabbi is a mentor, a spiritual guide. You know, there's uh, people consult with rabbis. They confide in rabbis. I, I don't know that a judge fills the same role. In other words, if we were to bring this back to the conversation the way I kind of started it, is that when it comes to the role of a judge, at least the judge in a secular court, U.S. court, Typically, that is understood to be uh, a, a role that focuses exclusively on the law, morality, ethics, spiritual growth. These types of these types of things are really outside of the courtroom. That's not really what the role of a courtroom. Hey, Lily, good to see you. Um, so that's what a judge is. What's a rabbi? A rabbi, yes, a rabbi is knowledgeable in, in Jewish law, and a rabbi, if he doesn't know. Where, where the law is, he can look it up, right, as was mentioned. But a rabbi is more than just a, a Jewish legal authority. A rabbi is someone who hopefully can help inspire and guide and shape, you know, morals and values and ethics and spiritual growth and that sort of, th those sort of qualities as well. So what we have here is a, is a bit of a distinction, whereas... You know, in, in, in more secular terms, a judge is focused exclusively on the law. A rabbi balances both the law, uh, the legal and ethical considerations. What we see um, from, from this uh, conversation, this quick conversation, is that when, when thinking of Judaism and, you know, and rabbis that, of, co that of course, hold up, you know, play a, play a role in Judaism, so... It's not just the law that matters. It's the ethics. It's the morality. So whereas uh, a U.S. court might say, look, what's ethical is ethical, but we, we can only rule on what the law is. In a Jewish court of law, ethics and morals might be taken into consideration. 
This is because rabbis in Judaism have an interest not only in the law, but also in guiding people toward a higher ethical and spiritual life. In fact, and here's the first really big idea, Jewish law itself mandates from time to time the extra legal. Sometimes Jewish law mandates us to actually go beyond the letter of the law. So I'm going to say that one more time. Sometimes Jewish law itself mandates us, requires us, compels us to go beyond the letter of the law. That's kind of cool. So let me put up a text. Um, let's let Ray in. I'm going to put a text up on my screen. Um, and let's do this together. Hold on. Give me a quick second. All right. I thought I had this up, but clearly I'm going to need to pull this up. Quick moment. Ah, here we go. Hi, Ray. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Okay, I'm sharing my screen. Take a look at text number one. And Adina Malka, if you can please read this text for us. Don't forget to unmute. You shall do that which is right and good in the eyes of God. This is a biblical commandment from the book of Deuteronomy. You should do yasher and toiv, what's right and good. This becomes a legal requirement. So listen, listen to this. This becomes a legal or a biblical, a Torah requirement to sometimes go beyond the letter of the law to do what's right. Again, it's a crazy paradox. Right? On the one hand, you have the law. On the other hand, you have what's beyond the letter of the law. What I'm suggesting, what Torah is suggesting, is that the law itself tells you that, in certain circumstances, you must go beyond the letter of the law. That becomes binding. It's not only enough to do what's, what, it's not only enough to follow the law, you have to do what's right and good in the eyes of God. Does that make sense? Yeah? There's the legal, it's almost like there's the legal requirement, there's the above and beyond requirement, and then the, 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 the catch is, or the punchline is, that Jewish law requires, from time to time, that higher level of, of, um, of conduct, that extra legal, beyond the letter of the law conduct. In fact, Rabbi? yes. Rabbi? Is this also a way to include some things that might not explicitly be you know, uh, itemized in the Torah about positive mitzvah or don't do negative mitzvah? Yeah, so the rabbis legislated uh, certain laws beyond biblical requirements. So some things that we do, for example, lighting Shabbat candles, it's not a biblical mitzvah, it's a rabbinic mitzvah. But this would be not um, rabbinic law. This would be, which I think you might be alluding, I'm not sure exactly what you have in mind, but there's, some, there's a category of law called rabbinic law, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about tonight the idea of going going above and beyond the letter of the law, which is basically doing what's right, even if it's not mandated to do what's right, and then that becomes mandated because of the biblical obligation to do what's right and good. 
That's the plot twist. And we're going to see a practical, very practical example, and we're going to get really involved in that example. So if you want to know kind of like what category, what genre we're talking about, hold on, because I'm about to, uh, we're, we're going to present a, an area. But I just want to do one more text that highlights how important this is. Take a look at this text. It's really, um, it's really shocking. This is text number two. And Donna, you know what? If you don't mind reading this one, this is from the Talmud. Take a look at this. Rabbi Yo Yochanan said Jerusalem was destroyed because they based their judgments on the strict law of the Torah and they did not act beyond the requirements of the law. That's what the Talmud says. The Talmud says Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Jewish people were exiled. Why? By the way, the Hebrew is even more radical. Al Shadanu Badin Torah because they follow the Torah. What? Jerusalem's destroyed because they followed the Torah? Yes, they only followed the law and they didn't go beyond the law. In other words, they acted as required but did not act like a mensch. What, if we wanted to use that word mensch, and I think uh, I'm about to, to break that out, I've already broken it out, but let's officially uh, trot this word out for tonight's class. We see here a biblical mandate to be a mensch. Even if you can't pin it down in a law, there's no law in the Torah, there's no specific law that says in this case you have to be a mensch. But the Torah says a general statement, you should do what's good and right, or what's right and good in the eyes of God. Be a mensch. The, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was sacked, the Jewish people exiled. Why? Because we only follow, at that time, we only follow the law and we were not being a mensch. We were not treating each other like a mensch. That itself has ramifications. So, so far we've seen something phenomenal. You cannot walk into a courtroom in the United States and expect the judge to go beyond the letter of the law, right? The judge is not going to say, well, you know, the law sides with this guy, but you know what? We're just going to go that way, or, 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 you know, and even though you fulfilled your legal requirements, I'm still going to hold you to a higher ethical standard. On what basis does the judge have a right to say that? Doesn't. No judge would be able to, that would never withstand a challenge. I mean, the judge could rule that, but then the, the one side, the, the one side that, that was ruled against would appeal, and certainly they would win on appeal. There's no way to make an extra legal ruling stand up in a court of law in the United States. However, in Judaism, as we'll see, the extra legal has legal weight. It has legal weight. To see some examples of this in action, let's look at the laws regarding lost property. But first, let me give you a bit of an introduction. The, the laws, there's a very big mitzvah in the Torah. It's discussed at length in the Torah portion of Mishpatim, which happens to be my bar mitzvah Torah portion. And the law is, the mitzvah is called Hashavas Aveda, which means returning a lost object. So the Torah essentially says that if you're walking down the street and you find something that seems to have been lost by its owner, you find a wallet, you find a, an animal. We, we talked about animals uh, last week, right? You find a cat, you find a dog, you find uh, a sheep or a cow, goat wandering in the street. You have an obligation or you find an item of clothing. 
You find a scarf, you find a coat, you find a pair of shoes. Yeah, you find something on the street. There is a biblical obligation. This is law, not even ethics right now. This is law. There is an obligation to collect that item and seek out its owner. And there's a, a Talmudic, major Talmudic section, many, 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 many dozens of pages dedicated to these laws. Exactly when you're obligated, how you're obligated, what's the extent of the obligation, but at the core, there's a mitzvah called Hashavah Saveda, returning lost property to its original owner. If you find something, you got to give it back. And I know we've talked about cases, finders, keepers, where you can keep it. But again, the general law is you find something, you seek out the owner, and you give it back. That's the general law. There are some exceptions. One exception is where you find something that has no identifiable marks. So, for example, if you find the $5 bill lying in the middle of the street, how do you, how do you go seek out the owner? Uh, did anybody lose a $5 bill? You're going to get a lot of emails. You put your email address, you're going to get tons of emails. Yeah, I lost $5. Sure, sure you did. You and a thousand other people on the same block on the same day allegedly lost $5 when I announced that I found $5. So how do you go about it? Now, if there was an identifying mark on the bill, for example, the bill said property of, right, Rabbi Ari, well, then I might have a claim to collect that money I mean, but even then, that might not be... You know what? Let's forget about money. Let's say you find a coat. Yeah, you find a coat. Jacket, whatever it is. Try to identify the owner. Um, if it has a name inside, now you're in business. Now you can try to find a wallet that has some ID. Perfect. Easy peasy. But what if there are no identifying signs? Known in Hebrew as simonim. No signs. There's no indication of who owns it, who lost it. So how do you know? So you might announce, I found something. And wait till somebody says, oh, did you happen to find this thing? And if it matches, maybe that's good enough. The Talmud uh, deals with this extensively. But that's really not the point of why I brought this up. I want to share with you a very interesting scenario. Imagine. Oh, before I, before I bring this scenario, I've got to introduce one more thing. The Talmud says, Jewish law uh, declares that in a situation where there are no signs no identifying marks on the item that's, that's lost. The assumption is that whoever lost that item probably has despaired, given up hope, of ever seeing that thing again. Why? Because how are they going to be able to identify it even if somebody found it? So like, oh, yeah, I lost the thing, but it has no the, the coat, the jacket, the money, whatever. But there's no way that I can identify. There's no way I could ever claim it as mine. What proof could I give that that is mine? Again, if there is, then that's not the scenario. If there's no identifying marks, then the moment you realize you lost it, you're like, well, I'll, need, I'll never see, see that again. And at that moment, halakhically, according to Jewish law, the, the moment we can assume safely that the owner has given up hope of ever seeing it again, you actually can keep it. The finder can actually keep it. You don't have to return it because the owner has disconnected, has cut the cord, so to speak, of ownership by despairing of ever seeing it again. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yes? Sort of? So again, something, and in Hebrew, in Hebrew, this is called yiush. Yiush. Yiush means despair, giving up hope, 
essentially relinquishing the belief of ever seeing it again. We've all had that. Everyone, and I point to all the boxes, the Brady Bunch, right? Everyone here, sorry, everyone here has had that experience where you lost something and you're like, I'll never see that again. Yeah, we've all had that experience. You were visiting somewhere, you traveled, you stayed at a hotel, you were in an Uber, you left something somewhere, you left a book. Yeah, happened with us. One of the kids, we were traveling once, and the kids left a library book or whatever it was in a hotel room. Goodbye. Good, as my grandfather used to say, goodbye, Charlie. Done. Finished. Finito. It happens, right? And then what happens? And then uh, Donna says, it happens in her home. Right, exactly. So, so what happens in that case? I'll tell you what happened. I called the hotel a few days later when, when my kid realized. And I'm like, hey, did you happen to find such and such book by such and such author in, ho in the hotel room? And they're like, let's check our lost and found. Nope, it's not there. All right. At that point, I basically made arrangements to buy the library a new book that, or pay them for a new book. Because I'm, I'm not holding out hope to ever see that again. If somebody finds it and is able to identify that it's mine, guess what? They have no obligation to give it back to me. That's the plot twist. I'll say that one more time. If someone finds it and could trace it, yeah? If someone finds it and could trace it, they have no obligation to give it back the moment I cut the psychological, mental, or belief cord between, of ownership between me and that thing. The moment that cord is cut, no one has the, the, the um, obligation to give it back. So let me give you now the scenario. All right, take all that information and put aside for a moment. Here's the scenario. Imagine you lose a wallet with your ID. It has your license, has your credit cards, it has $500 of cash. It's a very expensive wallet right now that you lost. And you lose it in a city or in a town, no, in an area of Ganovim. You know, what I, you know what Ganovim are? Thieves. Thieves. Ganovim. Yeah, people that will rob you blind. You lost it in the marketplace of Ganovim. You come home and you check your pockets, or you check your bag. My wallet, it's gone. What's the first thought that runs through your mind? Goodbye, Charlie. Never seeing that again. Not, nothing doing. Nothing doing. No hope. The Talmud says, the Talmud rules, that if you find the wallet in a marketplace of thieves, not if you lost it, if you found it, and you open up the wallet, and you're an honest person, you open up the wallet, and it has the person's ID in it, Halachically, based on Jewish law, you don't have to return it. Why? Because that, yes, yes. Why? Because they have given up hope on the item. Yish, they have relinquished ownership. Once they relinquish ownership, it's available. However, what if they held down hope? We, we, why would they have hold, held out hope? It's a place of Ganovim. Why, why are they so meshuggah to hold out hope? So the halacha does not base itself on the Meshuganah. Halacha doesn't say one guy is going to still hold out the hope to find that, that, that there's going to be an honest thief. What kind of honest thief? Yeah? You never know. You know the story about the Ganif that comes to the rabbi. The Ganif comes to the rabbi before Yom Kippur and says, Rabbi, it's Yom Kippur and I feel really bad. 
A whole year I steal things. A whole year I pick people's pockets. And I, and I, and I feel bad. I want to do tshuva. So the rabbi says, okay, here's what you should do. This, that, or the other. You know, he gives him a whole system, a whole protocol of tshuva. And the man, the ganav thanks him and leaves. A few, few minutes later, the rabbi uh, checks his pocket for his pocket watch. And it's gone. He's unbelievable. He calls, he calls for the ganav, brings it back, and he says, Yanko, did you steal my watch? He says, Rabbi, I have to confess I did. He's like, but you came into me about shuvah, about repenting from the stealing. He's like, Rabbi, shuvah is shuvah, but business is business. Anyway, the point is a ganif, you can't rely on a ganif, yeah, being honest. So yeah, you, this person, you were the one person that held that hope. Halacha doesn't base itself on the minority, on the exception to the rule. It goes by probability. Probability is that most people in this, in this place, having lost something there, will have relinquished hope. In that case, you can keep it. Finders, keepers, no questions asked. However, that's just the law. But then, of course, there's lefnim hadin, which is beyond the letter of the law, which is why we're bringing this example. So hold on, and I'm going to read this text from the Talmud. It's a fairly long text. Okay? Uh, yes. How do you know that someone's lost hope of finding the object? You don't. You have to go by probability. You have to go by, a, by general rules. General rules are if they're identifying marks, if there's clear identifying marks on the item, then we can assume yeah. the person did not give up hope. If there's no identifying marks on the item, including not identifiable where it was placed, in other words, if you hit it somewhere unique and that itself is an identifying mark, then, then, then that is, then we assume the person did not give up hope because they could say, hey, did you find it, you know, in the corner tucked away, da da da, and that would be enough of a, of a simon of an identifying hope, identifying mark, so that they would, would hold out hope. If there's no identifying marks, or if there are identifying marks, but you lost it in a place of ganovim, then the assumption is, the, 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 um, the one who lost it has given up hope, and therefore it is whoever finds it could legally keep it. Now, but take a look at this story, because I think this will address some of the discomfort with this. Rav Yehuda, listen to this. Rav Yehuda was once following his teacher, Marshmuel, in the cereal market, a place frequented by, by many people, the majority of whom would likely keep a found object for themselves. You know what we call that? Ganavim, or maybe not Ganavim, maybe just uh, people that like to put things in their pockets and not, and, and, and not ask too many questions. So Rabbi Yehuda um, asked his teacher Shmuel, if someone found an identifiable object, yeah, that's an identifiable object, it has a simon, it has a sign, like a money bag there, like a money bag here, or in another place like this, what would be the law? Would the finder have to announce his discovery or would the money bag be his? Shmuel said to him in reply, it would belong to the finder because the owner can be assumed to have given up hope in recovering it. It's exactly what I've told you thus far, right? The law is, even though it might have ID in it, you can keep it, because we assume that the owner has given up hope, because most people will not be honest in this place. Rav Yudha asked again, what would be the law if someone came and accurately described an identifying mark on the money bag, establishing conclusively that he was the owner? So we're not talking about an ID. I don't think they carried ID back in those days. It's more like, let's say there was a scratch you know, there was, a, there was a clear scratch on it or an X mark or some sort of initial on it. You know, it's some clear identifying mark. So you, if you found it, you don't know who it belongs to, but you could certainly, if somebody said, hey, did you find the bag with an X in it? You could say, yes, I did, and that would be a clear sign. So Rav Yehuda says, well, what, what if this person does come and, and, and asks around, did, you, did anyone find the money bag? And, and clearly indicates and identifies the, the sign 
and and, uh, and and describes the identifying mark on the money bag, which establishes that it, that it was his. So Shmuel said to him in reply, in such case, the finder would be obliged to return the money bag. Would be obliged. He would have to return it. Okay? Review the asked in amazement. How can you say both things? Your two answers appear contradictory. If the money bag belongs to the finder because the owner has given up hope, then why should, it defi- why should the finder return it if the owner comes and identifies it? In other words, if the guy's already given up hope, then you can keep it even if he comes back and identifies it. Shmuel said to him, and here's the punchline right here. Shmuel said to him, although the finder has a valid legal title to the money bag, he should nevertheless return it. And in doing so, he goes beyond the strict requirement of the law. According to the letter of the law, the money bag belongs to the finder, and he need not go to the trouble of announcing that he has found it. But since the identity of the owner is now known to him, it would be proper to return it anyway. In other words, what is the law? The law is a paradox. On the one hand, the law says you can keep it. On the other hand, the law says you have to return it. So which one is it? It makes no sense. So the strict the strict ruling of the law is you can keep it. The owner gave up hope. You can keep it. It's yours. Legally, technically, it's yours. But what happens if the owner has presented himself and says, you know, waves his hand, here I am, and you know that you found it. So what do you do? You have to give it back. But, but I don't have to give it back. It's mine. Legally, it's mine. Yeah, but the Torah also says to do what's right and good in the eyes of God. And you know what that means? It means be a mensch. And in this case, it means return the money back. So I saw some, I saw some consternation. I saw some exasperation when, when I was detailing the Jewish the, the halacha that says you can keep it. And Jewish law deals with that. The Talmud deals with that obvious, obvious um, sense of frustration with the law and says, yes, in this case, the mandate is to go beyond the letter of the law. That's that, and that's a paradox. The mandate is to go beyond the letter of the law. It's still not the law. It's beyond the letter of the law, but you have to follow it, which begs the question, then why, is, why don't we just call it the law? So we'll get there in a second, why it's not called law, even if you have to do it. Um, Morris, jump in. No, I, I agree with you. I think the word is bench is what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a man. He's a man. He's a man. But here, the, here the Talmud, Talmudic law, obligates you to be a man. It's not like you can keep it, and then if you want to give it back, you can. No. Shmuel says to his student, you have to give it back. Why? I thought it's mine. Yeah, because sometimes you have to be a man. Sometimes. We're going we're gonna to make sure you're, you're a man. All right, Judy, jump in. Hold, hold on one second, one second, Doreen. Judy, Judy, jump in. That makes a big difference. One second. Judy, jump in. Yeah. So what you're talking about is morality and what's ethically correct, right to do. Correct. But, but the crazy thing here is that the Talmud, which is, I mean, the Talmud also has ethics. That's true. But the Talmud says that the law itself would mandate an ethical, a higher ethical standard than the base law itself. That's not just suggested. It's almost mandatory as well, but it's not called law. It's called beyond the letter of the law. So, so why are we still making a distinction? Because it's important to know what you have to do versus what you should do. And sometimes it's important that you must do what you should do. Are you with me on that? Yeah? It's important to know that this is beyond the letter of the law, and you still have to do it. You still have to do it. It's like, I'm giving, I'll give you an example. It's like kids, yeah? Kids say, um, you know, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. 
So there's two, two general approaches. One general approach is explaining to the kid why they want to do it. And the second one is to explain to the kid, I know you don't want to, but sometimes you do things you don't want to. That's fine. It's fine. Sometimes you have to do something that you don't want to. It, it, it allows a child to develop the skill of doing something that's difficult for them. Doing something that's hard. So here, the, here Jewish law says the following. This is the law. This is the, op, this, this is the law, right? Right here. This is the moral, ethical value beyond the letter of the law. This you're required to do, the law you're required, and this standard, you're also required. But it's not the law. I mean, it kind of is the law now because we backed into it, but it's not the law, it's the ethical mandated standard. And because of this, it's basically, this case, the rabbi tells the student, you have to be a mensch. I am telling you, you have to be a mensch. I'm not leaving it up to your own devices. You have to be a mensch in this case. But it's still not the law, it's the ethics. Okay, so that's this idea. Um, Doreen, jump in. What the, to me, it sounds like the bottom line is Talmud. That's the bottom line. However, we're really in front of a higher judge. Good. And we want to do what's right in the, the eyes of God. And that's why you go beyond it. Good. Do the right thing. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Right. The verse, the opening verse was doing what's right and good in the eyes of God. Exactly. Right. So we're held like Hebrew national hot dogs to a higher authority. Right. We're held to a higher authority. And that's the way it is. So, yeah, the law, you could get away with keeping the money back. But that's not what God wants. That's not what God really wants. God says this is the, the minimum of what you have to do. But come on, God's not going to be happy with that. That's not the right thing. That's not what's right and good in the eyes of God. Therefore, you must give it back. I want to give you another example. I'm going to move quickly through this example because we have our big showcase case to deal with soon. This is all by way of introduction. But let, let, let's just do this quickly. The case of the broken barrels. The broken barrels. Here we go. I'm going to read this. Take a look. This is again from the Talmud, Bava Metziah. There were certain porters, yeah, people that are schlepping stuff, who had been hired to move a barrel of wine belonging to Rabbah Bar Bar Hanan. And as a result of the porter's negligence, the barrel was broken. Ay, ay, ay. Imagine you hire movers and they break your couch. Ay, ay, ay. Gewalt. Right? So he hired movers to move barrels of wine or a barrel of wine and they broke the barrel. And you know what happens when you break a barrel of wine? Yeah, what happens to the wine? See you later. Goodbye, Charlie is tonight's theme. So now when they failed to pay for the damage, Rabbah seized the porter's cloaks to ensure that he would be adequately compensated for the wine that he had lost. He basically seized their jackets, right, their, their coats, and he said, you know what, if you don't want to pay me, I'm going to hold on to this. The porters then came before Rav and told him, he was in, that was a rabbi, he was known as Rav, and told him what Rabbah had done. After hearing both parties' claims, Rav said to Rabbah, give them back their cloaks. Rabbah asked him, is it the law that I am not permitted to seize the porter's property? Rabbah answered, yes. Even though formally you did no wrong, you should have waived the rights to which you are entitled by law and fulfilled the higher demand of the verse that states that you may walk in the way of good men. In other words, sure, you were legally allowed to seize their cloaks um, for non-payment of their damage. Sure, you were technically allowed to do so, but that's not the right thing to do. Therefore, give them back their cloaks. Rabbah accepted Rav's ruling and gave the cloaks back to the porters, but he withheld their wages. He didn't pay them. He didn't pay them for the moves, for the move, right? Claiming that he was not required to pay them because they had not completed the job for which they had been hired. I hired you to move a barrel, not to break a barrel. So he didn't pay them. 
So he didn't collect the, the damages, but he didn't pay them either. So the porters once again turned to Rav and said to him, we are poor, we have worked all day, and we are hungry, and we have nothing to show for our labor, for we have not received our wages. We worked all day, and all we have to show for it is a broken barrel, but no money. Rav said, then said to Rabbah, go and give them their wages. He said, pay them. In response to this ruling, Rabbah said to Rav, is this the law that I must pay the porters despite the fact that they broke my barrel of wine? Rav answered, yes. You must fulfill the higher demand of the latter part of the verse I quoted earlier, which says, and keep the paths of the righteous. Strictly speaking, the porters are not entitled to wages. But considering their poverty, you should go beyond the minimum requirements set by the law and pay them anyway. And the commentaries explain that maybe this was only for Rabbi Babrachanan, who was a very special guy and a very holy man and a leader of the community. But either way, we see here once again that there's the law, but then there's what you should do. And sometimes what you should do becomes mandated by the law itself. Even though that's not the law, that's the ethical standard, that's being a mensch, Jewish law will sometimes tell you, you have to now be a mensch. Even though the law doesn't say it, the ethics. So again, we have two systems. It would be cool if I had like a bar type thing, not like a L'chaim bar, but like, you know those like graph bars where there's like two different colors, like red and then, you know, blue. Like there's an area of law and then past the law, there's the area of ethics. And usually there are two separate categories. There's law and there's ethics and, you know, one is legal and one is, you know, about growth and, and spirituality and divine connection. But sometimes the law itself will say you have to uphold that higher standard. You have to. Now, it's not the law, it's still the ethics because there's still a value in delineating between the two. Like I said before, there's a value in telling your kids um, you don't want to do it, you still have to. Right? There's a value in telling somebody you don't, it's not the law, it's the ethics, now go and do it. There's a value in that. It, it inculcates the idea of being a mensch. It, it helps a person become a little bit more menschy. Um, but in general, when it comes to ethics and, and, and morality, sometimes it's legislated and enforced, sometimes it's not. It depends on the situation. Not always does the law enforce the ethical standard, but I gave you two cases in which it will. Number one, the case of finding something amongst thieves um, you know, the honor amongst thieves case, where you find something that was lost among thieves and it has an identifying mark and somebody says, hey, I lost this thing with this mark on it. Did you find it? Yeah, you should give it back, even though you don't have to, but you kind of have to. And then the other one with the poor porters and they, they damaged the move, in, in the move they, 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 they didn't finish the job, but Rabbah was told you got to pay them anyway, and that's the deal. So I, I want to give you another example third example of extra legal behavior that is legislated and enforced by Jewish courts and that will serve as today's, uh, uh, what, what drives today's three case studies. The case that we're going to explore tonight for the next 45 minutes is called Bar Metzra. No, I did not say Bar Mitzvah. That's that's something else. That's a 13-year-old young man celebration, bar mitzvah. This is not bar mitzvah. This is bar metzra, bar metzra. In fact, because it sounds the same, right, I feel like I can, uh, I should type it in the chat. So here we go, bar metzra. Okay, bar metzra. There you go, it's in the chat. Bar is the same, metzra. Barmetzra means the neighbor, the adjoining property owner. 
And here is the general scenario. If I wish to buy a house or a property, if I wish to buy a piece of real estate, Jewish law, or as we'll see, Jewish ethical standard requires me to check with the neighbors of the property to make sure that they do not want to buy it. You got that? You got what I just said? Okay. You want to buy a house at 5 Park Drive. Yeah, you want to buy 5 Park Drive. You got to check with 3 and 7 Park Drive to make sure that they don't want to buy it. Only if they don't want to buy it are you allowed to buy it. Why? Because of Bar Metzor. If I step in, if I wish to buy it, if it, so, one second. If they, if any of the neighbors want to buy it, then I have to step away. If they don't want to buy it, then I can proceed with the purchase. And if I buy it without checking with them, ooh, let's say I pulled the fast one. Let's say I, yeah, yeah, I didn't check. I just bought. I just bought five park. What was it? Park Drive. Whatever. I just bought bought five Park Drive. I just bought it. I didn't check with anybody. Shh. No one's going to find out until it's too late. You see that? I just scored five Park Drive. No big deal. Nope. Not in Jewish law. Jewish law says that uh, um, if the, when the neighbors find out about it, find out about the quick sale, they can actually force the reversal of the sale. In fact, they can, for, they can pay me. Let's say I purchased it. They can, give me, they can force me to take the money for my, for, my, for my purchase, and they get the land. Does that make sense? They can force it out of my hands. Now, this is not biblical law. This is not Torah law. Nowhere does Torah say that one is not allowed to buy property without first checking in with the neighbors. You can look through all five books of Moses, front and back, look for the subliminal messages, you know, play the music backwards, whatever you want to do. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it um, in the Torah saying you have to check with neighbors before you buy land. However, this is an extra-legal ethical standard. This is extra legal ethical behavior, that which is, quote, right and good. Do what is right and good in the eyes of God. The understanding is, and the premise of this is, that, it, that the one that would gain most from this land is the neighbor, right? There's no other land as advantageous as neighboring property. Whereas I can buy anywhere. If I want something, you know, if I want a piece of land, I could buy anywhere. But for the neighbor, there's only one piece of property that's adjoining the, the neighbor's property, and that's the one that I'm interested in buying. So the right thing to do is to give him the option to buy it first, and only if he doesn't want to can I buy it. Now, before we take questions, I just want to show this to you black and white, the way it's described in the Jewish codes. Okay, here we go. This is text number five. This is from literally from the Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law. Okay, here's what it says. If someone sells land to another person, whether he sells it himself or through an agent or through the court, it doesn't matter. The neighbor, whoops, the neighbor who owns the adjacent property has the right to pay the buyer the purchase price and evict him. If the neighbor was not consulted, if the neighbor didn't waive his right, if the neighbor is just finding out about it now, the neighbor has the right, has the option 
to give the money back to the buyer. In other words, let's say, very simple example, let's say the house, the property sold for $100,000. Sorry, Ruvain, let's do, let's do this right. Ruvain buys a piece of land for, for $100,000. Yeah, the neighbor finds out about it. The neighbor can say to Ruvain, you paid a $100,000. Okay, here's $100,000. See you later. It's my adjoining property. I'm going to buy it. That is called the din of bar metra. It's the law of bar metra. But again, to be very clear here, this is not biblical law, right? It's not even what we would call, I mean, it is rabbinic law, but it's not like typical rabbinic law. This is, I mean, it is rabbinic law, but it's rabbinic ethical, extra legal law. It's based on the premise of doing what's right and good as opposed to doing what you have to. There's nothing wrong with purchasing something for $100,000. You didn't steal anything. You gave fair market value. You, Ruvain bought the land. He didn't do anything wrong. But the neighbor has an interest in this land. We got to deal with the neighbor first. And if he doesn't, the neighbor can give him back, give him back his money and take the neighboring property. All right, Adina Malka, jump in. Don't forget to unmute. It seems to me that the responsibility oh, that the responsibility is of the seller. The seller needs to ask the neighbor first if he wants to buy it. If the neighbor doesn't want it, then he can offer it to the public. It's a, I feel like it's the, the seller, the owner of the land. That's his job. Yeah, in the U.S. in a, in a U.S construct, in a U.S. mind construct, that would make sense, but not in the Jewish construct. In the Jewish construct, it's Vasisa Yashar You have to do what's right. You have to be a mensch. And that obligation would be both on the seller and on the purchaser. In other words, the purchaser also has an obligation to be a mensch. The purchaser has an obligation to be a mensch and to make sure that they're not undercutting, they're not, you know, not, even unintentionally harming the neighbor or disadvantage, uh, uh, putting the neighbor at a disadvantage by swooping in and taking that property that would benefit the neighbor. What if there's a neighbor on each side? What if the neighbor on each side wants it? Good, so you have to offer it to both. What if they both want it? Then yeah. there's a mechanism. Good, there's a mechanism for dealing with it. But that's already the details. That's already the details, how they work it out between them. Uh, they split it. They come to a compromise. They figure it out. They have to both deal with it. But the point is, the third party who doesn't own adjoining property, they can buy it after they've checked with the, with the neighbor. Okay, um, any other questions before we give some exceptions to the rule? I have a question. Yes. <laughs> and it's really... Really, exactly. Uh, I'm in the situation now. Um, what if there's a tenant on the property? That's going to be the last case study. Good, excellent question. That's okay. the last, the last case study. Yeah. I have one more question. Um, I don't want to be political, but you said you said to do the right thing, the right thing, and 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 if we're not obligated to because we're not a member of. But because NATO is not... Is yeah, not oh, hold on. Yeah, we, we, we're not... That's going to that's gonna spin too far off into uh, okay. other territory. Okay. Is it, it, okay. You, you and I can talk about politics all night, but not, not no, for the club. not politics. I, I understand. It's, I understand. We're not, it's not... Going, the, going beyond the letter of, of you, the law... But let's keep it to this. Let's keep it to this, okay. keep it to this topic. I'm just so, ready to... Yeah, so, so let's get... So okay. in this topic, we have... The, so, yeah, so we have the idea of Bar Metzger. So what is bar metzra? Right. 
Bar is this idea of making sure that the property, that the neighbor, the adjoining property owner has the potential or has the option of purchasing it first because they stand to be at the, it stands to be the most advantageous to them, to the proper, to, to the neighbor. Um, so if you buy it and you don't consult with the neighbor first, they can give you the money and, and pull it out from under you. So, so make sure, so it's, 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 it's good practice to consult with the neighbor first. But there are some limitations because since Bar Metzra is not Torah law, that somehow associates, you know, magically associates the neighbor with the property, but it's rather a legislated extra-legal um, good behavior, it stands that there are limitations um, to its application. In other words, there are situations where it may not be right and good to offer it to the neighbor. So let's say, for example, the neighbor doesn't want to pay the same amount of money as the, as the, as the potential purchaser, right? Imagine if Ruvian wants to buy it for $100,000, and he says to the neighbor, hey, what, what's your deal? He says, yeah, I also want to buy it, but I can only spend 50000 <laughs> Well, then it's not apples to apples. And we tell the neighbor, see you later, alligator, right? If you, can't, if you can't pony up the same amount of cash, the seller doesn't have to take a loss because you should do what's right and just. That's not how that works. You can't, you can't mandate um, taking, the seller taking a loss. It's only if the seller is not losing in the process that the seller is able to, um, uh, that, that the seller should, that, that it should be offered to the neighbor. But if the neighbor does not want to pay the full, mar the, the same price, well, then the neighbor is, is out of the equation. That's number one, exception number one. So yes, it should always, it should always go to the neighbor first, except number one, where the neighbor can't pay that or doesn't want to pay the full amount. Number two, second exception. Barmetzer will only apply if we can tell the potential purchaser, go somewhere else. But if there's no option to go anywhere else, then we allow him to, per to, 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 get, to get it. So for example, for example, if the owner of the house or the owner of the property, yeah, is giving it to Reuven as a gift, I just changed the nature of the case. He's not selling it, he's giving it as a gift. So, so listen up for a second. Let's say the owner of the house, right, Mr. X, wants to give it to Ruvain as a gift. The neighbor says, whoa, whoa, who's Ruvain? I want it. I, I'm the neighbor. Uh, Ruvain says to the neighbor, nice try, buddy. I can't get a gift from Mr. X anywhere. I can only get it here. This is the land that he owns. So I know you're the neighbor, but I can't, you can't tell me go somewhere else to buy, to get, the, to get land because I'm the neighbor. I can't get a free gift of land anywhere else. Are you with me on that? In other words, if there's something so sweet about this deal that is the only option, then the neighbor can't, can't block me from purchasing it. Okay, that's the second exception. And again, all these exceptions exist because it's not halacha. It's not, I mean, it's not biblical law. It's only under the guise of, it's only under the, the, the category of do what's right and good, be a mensch. Well, then it works both ways. A lot of times being a mensch would be offering it to the neighbor, but sometimes being a mensch means if you can't pay, then you don't get it. If this is a gift, the only gift that I can get, then you don't get it, you know, again, you don't get it. Third, third exception. Halakha says a woman or an orphan that is unfamiliar with the real estate market and would have great difficulty finding another deal 
So let's say a woman, a widow, an orphan, someone who is not very proficient. Of course, if they are proficient, it's different. But someone, any category, someone who's, who, who, who is not so proficient in the real estate market and found a deal for the neighbor to block the deal or to go to the neighbor and, and, and offer up to the neighbor, we don't do. Because what is doing what's right and good? It's letting her buy it. It's letting the orphan buy it. It's not the neighbor. Again, because it's all... Halacha doesn't say the neighbor owns adjacent properties. It says do what's right. Sometimes that means offering to the neighbor. But in the case of a widow or an orphan or a woman who's not familiar with the real estate market, it's allowing them to purchase it and not the neighbor. You with me on this? You have to be, you have to be smart about these things. What's right and what's being a mensch will depend on the circumstances. Final exception that I want to share with you is, and we're going to have more as the, as the ca- as class uh, rolls on, is what about a partner who shares ownership um, in that property? Imagine the property is owned by Mr. X and Ruvain. And now Ruvain wants to buy it out from his partner, from Mr. X. Are you with me? It's jointly owned, and the one partner wants to buy from the other partner. Does he need to check with the neighbor? He does not need to check with the neighbor. Why? Because his interests are even more right than the neighbor's right, and therefore it goes to the, to the, to the partner. And again, we're going to have more exceptions, but the reason why, why we have all these exceptions is because it's not a hard and fast rule. It's based on the premise of doing what's right. Well, that's going to depend. A lot of times what's right is to not have a third party come in, swoop in without offering it to the neighbors. By the way, this is a big thing that's hap- that happens in neighborhoods, right? Properties get sold to, to parties that come in from other neighborhoods. And meanwhile, the people that are from the neighborhood are like, the whole neighborhood is changing. I mean, that's maybe a bit of a different angle on it. But it's, part of it has to do with the idea of neighbors kind of being cut out of the real estate market. And, you know, well, then there's a question, of course, you know, are they, are they saying that they would pay the, the price that the others are paying? I mean, that's another question. But in general, halacha, Jewish law, or Jewish extra-legal law, so to speak, is concerned about the needs and, 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 and desires of the neighbors. So in general, we consider the position of the neighbors. But there are some times that we don't. If, if the neighbor doesn't want to pay the full amount, see you later. If, um, if uh, you can't get a gift, if it's a gift and you just can't get a gift anywhere else, then forget the neighbor. If it's someone who has difficulty uh, navigating the real estate market you know, for, for objectively valid reasons, and this is the deal that they have on the table, then forget the neighbor, right? We just don't deal with the neighbor. We don't, we don't, and if it's a partner who partially owned the real estate anyway, again, we don't consider the neighbor. In all these cases, Rabbi, we don't consider the neighbor. Yeah. How about a relative? You want to sell it to a relative? Oh, good question. Good question. In ge- very good question. In general, a relative, generally speaking, a relative would be privy to the bar mitzvah requirement and would not necessarily supersede the neighbor, would not necessarily, supersede. we're going to have a case that deals with that. Very, no, no, if, the relative didn't have, wouldn't have to go to the neighbor, is that correct? Would have to. Would have to? And the general rule is yes, 
but in certain circumstances, which we'll have, we'll, we'll have a case soon, um, that they would not have to. In other words, it depends on the relative and on the scenario. There's no hard and fast rule. It depends on how close the relative is and the specific case. But it's a very good question that you're asking. Um, Rabbi, I have a question real quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, I understand. It seems to me the reason for this is that if you have an individual who lives next door to a property uh, where the person's selling the property, then the neighbor should be allowed to get it first. But what if the neighbor doesn't want to keep the property? They just want to speculate with it, too. That's a very that's an that's an excellent yeah, question. That's an excellent yeah, question. They don't want the property to be part of their house. They want to speculate too. Mark is asking a, a wonderful question. The whole reason for why it's in the interest of the neighbor to have it is because you can't because adjoining property you can now build. It's expanded, whatever. But if anyway the neighbor's going to sell it, so then he should have the right to profit just because he's the neighbor. What gives him the? What, that's not that's not a benefit that he should get. I believe, Mark, that you're correct, and that rule would fall away in that case. Without having concrete knowledge of that, without looking at the sources, I believe that you're right on the money. I believe that in that case, the whole point is undone. The whole point is because how can you, if you buy land here and there, so how you can't join them. But if here and here, it's good. That's, but not if he doesn't want to buy it to, to add on. If he wants to buy it just to, just to sell it, I think you're right. I think, I think it would not. And that's why it's important to understand that this is not a magical law that Torah says that a neighbor has a, you know, it's like a magnetic pull to it. No, it's not magical. It's not like, you know, it's not a, a decree of the Torah. This is a logical, um, moral, and ethical consideration. It makes sense to allow the neighbor to get it first, to not cut the neighbor out of the process. But if, if that doesn't make sense, then cut him out of the process. He doesn't need to be involved in the process. Now, the only question is, how, how do you know what his intentions are, which then becomes a little bit murky, because what if he says he's buying it to expand it, and then basically says, gotcha, and then sells it, what do we do then? That's a, that's a, I don't know the answer to that. But you know, I think I think I think your your premise is correct. If he says clearly that he's not buying it to live in it, he's just buying it to sell it to flip it. Why should he get to make that profit on flipping that house just because he's the neighbor? Why should he have a greater right to profit over anyone else? He has a greater right to build out the real estate to to in the adjoining property. That makes sense. But greater right to profit just because his neighbor is it's up for sale that makes no sense. I think you're correct on that. All right, now let's get into case study number one. You ready? This is a case that came before Missouri courts. This case came be this case will get you so upset. Oh, everyone's going to be triggered. I'm telling you, get ready to be triggered. It's such a triggering case. Oh my gosh. Missouri Court of Appeals 2008. You guys ready? Buckle up and get ready to be upset. All right, here we go. I'm not making you upset. I'm reading a case you will get upset. Here we go. Prepare for the trigger. Ta uh, case study number one. Can you guys see this? I'm going to make it a little bit smaller. When, uh, uh, when Evelyn Halsey passed away in 1999, she left three adjoining lots in the Lake Tapawingo housing development. The homes were in poor condition and suffered from leaks, bad wiring, and termite damage. The Barretts, you got to remember the names here. The Barretts, 
who lived about a block away, agreed to purchase the property for $40,000 from the person handling the estate. They signed the sales contract on January 10, 2000, and closed on January 21, 2000. Immediately after closing the sale, the Barretts began making numerous structural and aesthetic repairs and improvements on the house. They continued to make improvements for several years, and, to, and the value of the property increased substantially over those years. All of the lots in Lake Tapawingo are subject to a restrictive covenant, which provides that the sale of any lot is subject to an adjoining lot owner's right of first refusal, requiring the seller uh -huh, to give 15 days notice to the owners of the adjoining lots prior to any sale, allowing them, the, the neighbors, the right to buy the lots at terms comparable to those of the proposed sale. Although Sue McNabb was the sole owner of an adjoining lot, she did not receive written notice of the sale of the property or sign a wa written waiver of her right of first refusal. She, she was the neighbor and she did not sign a waiver. Now, the McNabs and the Barretts were well acquainted. McNabs, sorry, the Barretts bought it. McNabs were the neighbors. They were well acquainted sharing a circle of friends and socializing together frequently. In October 1999, Evelyn Barrett called Mrs. McNabb and told her that they intended to purchase the property and asked McNabb if she was interested or would exercise her option to purchase the property. McNabb responded that though she was interested in the property, she could not afford it, and she wished the Barretts well in purchasing the property. The Barretts had lived in, at Lake Tapawanga for over 30 years and were well aware that the covenant required written notice to adjacent landowners prior to the sale. They had asked these questions of McNabb because they did not want to waste their time and efforts in trying to acquire the property if the McNabs, the neighbors, were interested in going to buy the property. They assumed that the attorneys for the estate would obtain a written waiver from the McNabs prior to the sale. They assumed, but that didn't happen as we'll see. On April 28, 2004, McNabb, the neighbor, filed a petition to quiet title, asserting that she had an interest in, that prop in the property because she had never received written notice and that had she received written notice, she would have purchased the property for $40,000 on the same terms as a sale to Barrett's. McNabb asked the courts, listen to this, to declare the deed transferring the property to the Barrett's null and void. She wanted to pay them $40,000 and then claim title to the property. However, many witnesses attested to the fact that McNabb knew about the sale when it occurred in January of 2000. It was believed that McNabb's petition was motivated by the increase in property value and the desire to acquire property then valued at over $100,000 at, at the much lower price for which it was sold. All right, I hope everyone's got the case. Yeah? Cases, the case, the mystery at Lake Topawanga. You think there's like a murder mystery. No, it's a house. It's a house that was sold to the Barretts and now the McNabs are saying it's ours We'll pay you the purchase price, 40000 but they know it's worth 100000 now. They know it's worth that much now. But they just want to pay 40000 and get the house. They said, we never received written notice. We never signed the waiver. But they had a conversation. There was a conversation that happened. Uh-oh. So there was verbal consent, but it wasn't written. So now what do you do? So now what do you do? So you be the judge. I'm putting up a poll. Finally. Yeah, an hour in, we finally get our first poll. This is you be the judge, lesson four, poll 4.1. 
Here we go, launching the poll. You be the judge. Who is entitled to the Lake Tapawingo, Tap oh, I may have pronounced that, spelled that wrong, property, the Barretts or the McNabs? The Barretts were the ones who purchased it. The McNabs were the neighbor. Barretts were the purchaser, McNabs were the neighbor. Go, what do you think? Who is entitled to the property? You are now the judge. You are on the Missouri State Court of Appeals. What do you say? What do you say, Barretts or McNabs? Barretts or McNabs? That is the question. Five, four, three, two. The gates are closing. Neilo, one. Oh, good. We got one more vote in. Shoo! Right under the wire. All right. I'm ending poll. The vast majority of you said the Barretts. Some of you said the McNabs. If you said Barretts, chime in, unmute yourself. Why did you choose the Barretts? But they had witnesses. Um, what? They may have not gotten it in writing, but there were many who were privy to that conversation. They could testify. Good. Good. What else? Why should it be the Barretts? They did the improvements. Oh. They owned, they owned the land. Good. They did the they improvements. Did they were not going to do improvements if they didn't own the land. Good. It's a presumption. Good, good, good. Excellent. Steve, jump in. Don't forget to unmute. Hold on, hold on, Steve, we don't hear you. You got to unmute. Sorry. Also, it said over time that uh, they made improvements, and then they, the other party decided they wanted to exercise the right. If they had exercised the right before the first few weeks, I think they would have stood a greater chance. But the fact that they waited until they already put in $60,000 of improvements, and they want those 60000 of improvements, for $40,000. Yeah, a little fishy, a little fishy. Four years later, four years later they sat on this. Yeah. What, okay, if you said, good, if you said um, McNabs, the neighbors, why did you say the neighbors? Jump in. Or even if you didn't, give me an argument why it should go to the neighbors. Because you said it would be really upsetting. I figured it probably was the McNabs, although I really didn't think that would be right. Mm, okay, good. What else? Except that it probably was right. What do you... <laughs> According to certainly the, the, the caveats of the, the property, there has right. to be notification, and there was no notification. Now, this creates liability. That means the attorneys are liable. That means the real estate agent is liable. Mm. And it's, if, in fact, the McNabs take the property, then they owe the difference of what these Barretts had put into the property. So you according to the, to the caveats, of that particular community, there was an obligation before you could own property to give notice, and that was not given. So you're saying on a, on a, on a very technical level, they yeah. had to receive a written waiver, they had to have signed it in order for this to officially go to a third party and not the neighbor. That never happened. They can claim it. They may have to give back the, you know, pay the difference in value to the ones who made the improvement. You may be able to sue the attorneys and whatever, but it should go to the neighbor. What's interesting is in this, in this case, I'll just give you the punchline. In this case, the court actually ruled the Missouri uh, Court of Appeals in the Western District in Marsha Sue McNabb, um, appellant versus Robert Barrett. The Court of Appeals ruled that indeed it stays with the purchaser and does not go to the neighbor. The court felt 
um, the court was convinced that the spirit of the covenant had been fulfilled, if not the technical requirement of signing the waiver. That's how the court felt. But at Morris, you make, you, you make the counter-argument, but the court uh, felt that the spirit of the covenant had been fulfilled and felt it would be wrong for the McNabs to seize the property now in a technicality. The courts therefore dismissed the claim um, of the McNabs and kept it with the Barretts. They had considerable investment in the money. There have been four years without being contested. Um, they knew about it based on um, evidence and witness testimony. Yes, they didn't receive the piece of paper, and yes, that was missed, but the court said, essentially, come on, let's not make a big deal about a piece of paper, which That's is interesting. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So we see here how the court ruled a little bit in, in, in somewhat of a reasonable way as opposed to a very strict by the letter of the law way. And uh, we're going to have some Jewish cases that also mirror this idea. Who wanted to jump in? Is it in? a Jewish judge? Uh, that's a really good question. I don't have the names of the, of the judges. I don't have the names of the judges, yeah. Well, it seems like a Jewish thing to do. But now, now let's do this. Now let's look at a case that came before definitely a Jewish judge, a rabbi known as the Hassam Sofer. Take a look at this case. I'm going to read case number two. So that was the secular case. Then now let's do the Jewish case. Okay, here we go. Um, all right. Uh, this happened back in the 1800s, to the early 1800s, to the honorable communal lay leaders of the city of Eisenstadt. Let, let me explain what's going on here. The rabbi was asked a question by the leaders of the city of Eisenstadt. I actually looked it up today. I couldn't find out where it is, but it's somewhere, somewhere in Europe. Um, and so the rabbi responded to the leadership of that city with his answer. Uh, sorry, with, um, uh, within, yeah, with the answer, but he first lays out, before we get to the answer, he first lays out the case. He says, I acknowledge... Uh, the, the, the city of Eisenstadt is Iron City. Nice. Do we know where it is, though? <laughs> no. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's beer. Right. Okay. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, Iron City. Right. A Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh brewery. Um, <laughs> Iron City beer. Morris, you know, you know about Pittsburgh a little bit. Absolutely. <laughs> University yeah. of Pitt. All right. Here we go. I acknowledge receipt of your letter, says the rabbi to the leadership of the city, in which you ask my opinion, listen to the case, regarding Moshe, whose properties were seized by secular courts, by the secular courts because he was unable to pay his debts. So, so let's just, I'm going to go slowly here. There was a guy, Moshe, and Moshe's property is seized by the courts because he's not able to pay his debts. Okay, now the secular courts decided to award Moshe's house and estate to Yehuda who was first in line to collect. So he is the first of the creditors, and he was the first in line to collect, so he got the house. So Moshe defaulted on his loans, and Yehuda, the, court, the secular court, awarded it to Yehuda. Yehuda, however, felt compassion for Moshe and decided to allow Moshe to continue to live in his house without charge until he would be able to repay Yehuda what he owed. So again, the secular courts came in and, and, and repossessed the house and gave it to Yehuda. But Yehuda, a fellow Yid, a Yehuda says, Moshe, you can stay here, <laughs> whatever. You can live here. What, I'm going to take your house? Yeah, the courts gave it to me. I'll let you stay here, no, no, free of charge. But here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the kicker. 
Moshe's neighbor, Dan, or let's call him Dan, Dan argued that Yehuda had no rights to the property and that he wished to exercise his rights as the bar metzra, the neighbor, and evict Moshe from the, from the house. You see what's going on here? I'm going to explain in a second. Let me finish and I'll explain. The rabbinic courts have ruled that the right to first refusal does not apply in this case, but Dan refuses to respect the ruling, and so you ask for my opinion in the matter. Let me break this down. Let me break this down. There's a guy, Moshe, he has a house. Yeah, this is Moshe's house. I know it looks like a smartphone, but this is Moshe's house. Okay, it's his house. Yeah, he can't pay his debts. So the courts, the secular courts, give it to Yehuda. So now Yehuda owns this house. And he lets Moshe stay there. Because, you know, we're all brothers. That's it. However, Dan, the Jewish neighbor, says, wait a second. Wait a second. Hold on. The house, Moshe's house, the title was transferred to Yehuda in lieu of repayment of a debt. Yeah? So let's, 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 let me throw some numbers. Let's say Moshe owned, owed Yehuda $50,000. Let's just say. And he couldn't pay the debt. So the court says, you know what? Give the house. Let's say it's also worth $50,000. Give the house. Sorry, we're seizing the house and giving it to Yehuda. $50,000. $50,000. The neighbor comes in and says, time out. Yehuda bought the house for $50,000? No, no, he didn't buy the house for $50,000. He got the house because he, def- he got the house for $50,000, right? He gave him $50,000 a year ago. The guy didn't pay back, so he got the house, which means he paid him $50,000 for the house. Perfect. I'm going to give Yehuda $50,000. Give me the house. That's what he says. I'm the neighbor. Yeah, you got the house for the $50,000 loan. Perfect. I'm going to cover the loan. Give me the house, I'm the neighbor. Are you with me on what I just said? Scenario makes sense? Yeah? All of that makes sense. But there's one catch. Yehuda had let Moshe live in the house. Right? Yehuda had let the original owner live in the house. If Dan now gets the house as the neighbor, guess who he's kicking out? The original owner. So now the question is, what is v'yasisa Hashem? What does God like? To give it to the neighbor or to keep it in the creditor's hands who's allowing the original owner to live there and not be homeless. Which do you think is more compassionate? You with me on this? This plot twist? Yeah? Okay. So let me let me let me pull up a put up a poll. So before we get to the poll, does is there any question on the case itself? That don't answer, I'm not looking for answers to the case. But is there any questions on Havana, on actual understanding of the case? Yes? Any questions on? No? Case is clear? Again, Moshe owns the house. He defaults on his loan. The court gives it to Yehuda. Yehuda. But Yehuda lets Moshe live there. But now Dan says, bro, you got the house for $50,000. I'm going to give you $50,000. I'm the neighbor. I get the house. The only problem is Moshe is living in the house. So who has a greater interest? Moshe never left the house. Moshe never left the house. Moshe's always been there. Moshe's right? always been there, exactly. And now Dan wants to take it as the neighbor, because you have to give it to the neighbor, first right of first refusal, bar mitzvah, give it to the neighbor. So Dan, Dan says, I should get it because I'm the neighbor. 
But if you think about the ethical imperative here, which has a greater ethical imperative? The neighbor's right to expand his property or the original homeowner's right who's being allowed now to live in this house to continue living there? Who do you think? So you don't have to answer out loud because I literally have a poll question that I can put up. Do it on the, do it on the app. You be the judge, my friends. Who is entitled to the Eisenstadt property? Yehuda, who's letting Moshe live there? Or Dan, the neighbor? Who, what do you think is more ethical? What do you think is more menshi? What do you think is more right? What do you think is more honest? What do you think is more um, godly? What do you think is more divine? What would God do? WWGD. No, I'm kidding. What, would, right, what do you think? <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, good. A clean sweep. This is, I think, the first poll that has been absolutely unanimous. Yehuda has swept the poll results. I mean, I kind of framed it in a way that should do that, but that's indeed the way the Hassam Sofer ruled. And I just want to go through a few texts that show you this inside. Again, the point of this is that, that bar mitzvah, the neighbor's right, is not a hard and fast rule. It depends on the scenario. Sometimes the more compassionate thing is not to give it to the neighbor, and this is one of those cases. Let's take a look at some of the texts over here. Um, uh, we have an interest. Here we go. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. If someone sells a property back to the one who sold it to him in the first place. Yeah? This is a different case. It's a, but but, but it, bring, it highlights this point. Imagine if Ruvain sells a house to Shimon, and then Shimon at a later point sells it back to Ruvain. But now with that second sale, the neighbor says, whoa, I'm the neighbor. Right? So now who gets it? The original owner or the neighbor? So the, the, the Code of Jewish Law deals with this. If someone sells a property back to the one who sold him in the first place, the original owner, the neighbor has no right of first refusal. We don't listen to the neighbor because it, between the neighbor expanding his property or the original owner who still has his kids' heights marked in the walls over there, right? Who, who, do, we, who do we have more Rachmanes on to give the house to? The original owner and not the neighbor. Yeah, Why? Uh, so the commentary says, the mayor in Naim says, since the property belonged to the buyer before, our sages didn't see it as fit to deprive him of his property as his previous connection to the property makes it right and good to grant the right to buy the property to him rather than to the neighbor. Again, it's not, there's no hard and fast rule. It's whatever is right and good. And that's going to change. That might change based on, it will change based on the scenario. So in some cases, yeah, to give it to the neighbor is right and good than, than some stranger. But if it's the original owner, the guy who, whose kids grew up there, who you know, sold it, but now a few years later wants it back, yeah, that's, that, that's what's right and good. Um, uh, okay, I, I don't think we need any more proof text. I think we got it. It's, it's pretty logical, even though there are, there are, there, there's, there's more text that support it. But I really want to get, get into our last case study. I want to give enough time, at least a few minutes, to deal with our last case study. So what we've established so far is like this. That in Jewish law, there's what's legally mandated, what we call halacha, right? Biblical law, the Torah law, what's, what you have to do. Then there's what's right. And sometimes what's right is optional. Sometimes what's right is mandatory. Sometimes you have to do what's right. Like the, the Jewish law says, you must do what's right. But in those cases, when you must do what's right, what's right could be a moving, a sliding scale depending on the circumstance. So in general, what's right is give it to the neighbor. Right? Allow the, allow the neighbor the first shot at it. If the neighbor knew about it and didn't do anything, and then four years later comes around, Halacha would say, sorry, McNabs, 
See you later. Even the Missouri court ruled that way. But Jewish law for sure would say that. Four years and now you woke up? Come on, get out of here. Right? What are you talking about? Um, in a case where it was repossessed, um, it was, it was uh, repossessed by the court, seized by the court, given to the creditor, and the creditor is allowing the owner to live there, but the neighbor now wants it and kicked to kick out the, owner, the, original, the, the previous owner, we tell the neighbor, sorry, buddy, but we have more, more compassion on the, on the owner who's living there. By the way, what I, what I didn't tell you and what the case didn't tell you is that Yehuda was related to Moshe. He was his son-in-law. Now, now you have a, more of a plot twist in that case. The Hassam Sofer's case that we just did, he was his son-in-law. Mo, Moshe was the father-in-law. He owed, he borrowed money from his son-in-law. He couldn't pay his son-in-law back. The court gave the house to his son-in-law. He obviously let it, I mean, whatever. He let his father-in-law live there. And now the neighbor wants to take it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Not happening. And by the way, Mindy made a very good point in the comments, but we'll circle back to that at, at the end of the class. But now I want to point out one more, one more case. All right, back inside, final case study, listen to this, the case of the rascally renter. All right, here we go. Minchat, uh, Minchat Yitzchak, he lived in the, Latin, the 1900s, a prominent uh, halachic expert, and here was a case that came to him. In regard to your question about your wish, listen, about your wish to buy a house that is presently rented, listen to this, somebody wanted to buy a house, that is currently being rented. And you are concerned, he's addressing the questioner, so you are concerned that should you do so, the renter will challenge the sale, claiming the right to first refusal on the basis of being a tenant who lives in the house. Listen to this case, right? Mom, I think it's the case you were referring to. Listen to this case, right? A guy, exactly. let's, let's use the name Ruvain again. Ruvain wants to buy a house. But what's the problem? Shimon's renting the house. Shimon doesn't own the house. Shimon's renting the house. It's owned by Levi, somebody else. So Ruben wants to buy it, and he went to Levi, and Levi wants to sell it for $100,000. Ruben says, Here's, I have $100,000, I want to buy the house. The problem is Shimon's living there. Shimon's paying rent. Ruben's concerned that he'll buy the house, and then Shimon's going to take him to court. And, and, and pull the rug out from under him. So what's the, what's the halacha? Does a renter, until now we've been talking about neighbors, homeowners, who want to expand their property. But what about a renter? Does the same thing apply to a renter that we should say, since he's already living there, he should get first dibs on the property so he doesn't have to move, right? If you can match the offer, let him live there, let him stay there, etc. So what's the ruling? Very interesting case. There's a massive dispute, a massive dispute amongst the Rishonim between the Rambam and the Rush. These are like the giants of the giants in Halacha. Let's get inside the text. Here we go. Text 10, Code of Jewish Law. And by the way, this is, before we get into the text, this is the scenario. This, one second. This is not the scenario we, scenario we, whoa, scenario we just mentioned. This is another scenario that is being spoken about in text 10. So we have a new case here. Take a look at this case. There is a house for sale. On one side is a renter. On the other side is a neighbor, a homeowner, neighbor. Okay, you with me? House for sale, renter, neighbor. 
Okay? Both are adjoining. Now let's go, let's do this case. A renter of a house does not have the right to first refusal with regard to a neighboring house. If the renter did purchase the house next to the house which he is renting, a neighbor who owns the house, who owns the house next to the sole property from the other side can remove the renter from the house. That is what the Rambam says. Listen to the Rambam. Maimonides says, if the renter buys this house, you guys with me on this? This house is for sale. If this renter buys this house, this neighbor can kick him out. He could say to the renter, I am the neighbor. I, the renter, is also the neighbor. You don't own. Get out of here. You don't own. Right? I can, he can, this guy, the neighbor, can pay him his $100,000 and send them packing. That's the Rambam. Some authorities disagree with this ruling. They believe that the renter does enjoy the rights of first refusal to a neighboring property, and that is the Rosh. The Rosh disagrees with Rambam. By the way, they all lived in the medieval times. They were contemporaries, more or less, around the same era. The Rosh disagrees. The Rosh says that if the renter buys this house, this guy cannot kick him out. Classic dispute. What are the rights of the renter? Is a renter considered to be a neighbor or not a neighbor? That's the question. Great. So what's the law? We, ha we have a dispute. What's the law? Here we go. Let's continue. In any situation where there is a disagreement among legal authorities as to whether someone has the right to first refusal, so what do you do in that case? Now we don't even know. The land, listen to this, the land stays with the buyer. As the buyer is the one, as the buyer is the one in possession of the land now. Thus, he can say to the neighbor, prove to me that the law is in accordance with the opinion which grants you the right of first refusal with regard to this land. In other words, whoever, had it, whoever got it first has the upper hand. You with me? So in this case, since we don't know if the law is like the Rambam or the Rosh, because they're both very prominent opinions, so if this renter guy buys it, the neighbor cannot kick him out. Even though the Rambam says yes, the Rosh says no, so we leave it in the hands of the renter. If the neighbor buys it, the renter cannot kick him out either. Whoever gets it first gets to keep it. So what do we see? We see that a renter's rights are questionable. Are we as compassionate about the renter as we are about a homeowner? We know for sure, without a doubt, that in Jewish law, when there's a neighbor who owns property, we want to give them, generally speaking, we want to give them the right to purchase that adjoining property. But a renter? Renter's complicated. Some say yes, some say no. And what do we do when push comes to shove? What do we do in real time? We usually leave things where they are. We don't, we don't reverse it. We leave it where it is. So how would you answer the case? How would you answer the case of, uh, uh, that I'm putting up on the poll? Yeah? Uh, sorry, let me reset the case. The case came before the rabbi. Um, the rabbi's name was... Second, it came before the Mincha Yitzchak. Yeah? And the case was where somebody wants to buy a house, but there's a renter living in that actual house. Not in a, an adjoining house. He lives in that actual house. And he's concerned that he'll buy the house. And the renter is going to put up a whole fuss and say, Oh, I was there. I live here. What are you doing? You can't buy this house. I live here. So what do you do? What do you do? Rabbi. What, one second. Let me put up the poll. Let me put up the poll for a second. Let me get the poll in. You be the judge. Who is entitled to the rented property? 
The buyer or the renter? Who should get the property, buyer or renter? Again, renter is living there, buyer wants to buy it. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Give another 10 seconds, buyer or renter? Oh, wow. A lot, a lot of results are coming in for the buyer. Very interesting. Three, two, one. I'm closing out the poll. Um, some of you said renter, some of you said buyer. What's interesting is, as we saw before, it's questionable in halacha because the Rabbim and the Rosh disagree. It's very questionable as to whether or not a renter has these rights. But one thing we said is that whoever is living there, right, we don't want to disrupt. We, since we're not sure, so we let whoever's living there have the upper hand. In this case, the renter's actually living there. In other words, even if the buyer gives the money for the purchase, at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day also, right, the renter is physically living there, which means it might be difficult to actually evict the renter from the property without getting that conversation in. Now, here's what the rabbi ruled. Here's what the rabbi ruled. It's very important to read the language of the ruling. Okay? Um... Uh, here we go. One second. Oh, where is it? Nope, it's not here. I'm sorry. You have to take my word for it. I don't have a text for it. You have to take my word for it from the original. The original text says, essentially, the rabbi responds to the question. Again, Ruvian wants to buy a house, but there's someone living there. And the rabbi said, basically, make sure you have a conversation with the guy because if you just give the money to the owner and, and the renter's living there, the renter can, can, can say, I'm not moving. Um, but understand this, understand this, and this is a very important caveat. If the renter doesn't want to give the same amount of money, if the renter doesn't want to pay the same amount of money, then he gets thrown out, right? It, the renter can't block it and just squat in the house. You with me on this? The question is only, does the renter have the right of first refusal? And in this case, the question is, does a renter have any rights or no rights? And we're saying, well, to be cautious, you know, we're not sure, but if, you wanna, if you're trying to move someone out of a place, you probably need to speak to them first. So that's what the halacha, that's what the cautionary halacha is. But if, the, if you have that conversation and the renter says, well, I don't have the money, then you know what happens? See you later. Then the renter goes and the sale goes through and someone else moves in and the renter finds another place to live. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes. Okay. Yes. Donna, jump in. Rabbi, does, yeah. um, do these, this property right laws is, that we're discussing from the rabbi's rulings, do they influence today our, you know, our property? No. Dina de Malchusa Dina. The law of the land is, is the law, and thus in America, property law, real estate law would go by the courts. We're talking about a Jewish perspective, Jewish ethical perspective. So if a deal is, if, if, if a property dispute comes before a rabbi in America, the rabbi could say what Jewish law would say. But if one of the litigants says, I'm taking it to secular courts, then there's no way to block that, and the courts will rule as they rule. And then you got to follow those rules as long as they're not like against biblical law, which in this case they're not, um, because there's no hard and fast rule. So again, it becomes a question of, I understand your question is how enforceable is this? That's, that's a good question. If both parties are agreeing, then it's absolutely enforceable. And either way, we get a, good, we get a bit of a behind the scenes, under the hood look at, 
at, at how Jewish law looks at things. So on many levels, it's an instructive conversation. And again, there is a practical consideration. There's a practical consideration as well. Look, if you're buying a house and there's a renter who lives there, it's good to have a conversation with the renter. Now, are you required to? Some say yes, some say no. What's best practice? Have the conversation. If the renter wants to buy it, it might be hard to, to, to block them from buying it first. If they don't want to pay the money, if they don't want to give the cash, if, they, if they're like, well, I don't have the hundred, I have $50,000. No deal. You, don't, you can't force the seller to take a loss just because the person's living there. It doesn't make any sense, right? So you, it's sensible. We gotta be sensible. Sensible and fair and just and right in the eyes of God, that is the guiding consideration. Yeah, Morris, jump in. I didn't, I didn't understand. Do you say if the neighbor purchased the house, could he throw the renter out? We're not, so I, the pro, I mixed two cases together because we had one case and then we used a proof text from a, from a slightly modified case. So the original case that came before the rabbi was not a neighbor, a third party who wants to buy a house. So Ruvain, who, Ruvain from Kansas City wants to buy a house in Atlanta that's, being cur that's currently being rented. So he's like, uh, what do I, like, what is, can I just buy the house? Do I need to check with that guy? Like, what do I do? So the halacha is, it's not so clear. Some say the renter should have right of first refusal. Some say renters don't, renters aren't homeowners. They're not neighbors. They're not, they don't have that status and therefore just buy the house. And, and that's it, move them out. To be cautious, we say to the, to the purchaser, to the potential purchaser, run it by him because at the end of the day, he's living there now. And if, if you want to say that you bought it and you're going to move him out, that, that might require a little bit more leverage that it's, it's uncertain that you have. The proof text for that, the, the case that we, we proved that from, or the question about a renter status was from a different case where there's three houses, the house for sale, a neighbor homeowner and a neighbor renter. And that's, that's where we learned about the status of the renter from that three house case. And then we applied it back to the single house case, the case of one house that has a current renter in there. So sorry, I know it was a little bit like a few, two cases wrapped in one. Yeah, but the point, the bottom line is, you know, if, again, we think about this from compassionate terms, from mensch terms. So the, the, the first principle is simple, right? It's there's an advantage and we feel a, 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 a ethical, you know, desire to make things good for people. So if a neighbor can expand their property, sure, that seems like the best ideal approach. Not if they're not going to pay, not if the other person's getting a gift, not if they can't navigate the, 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 the real estate market and this is the only deal they have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all, all the exceptions. And also, right, not if they had the right and waived it and not if they played games and not if, um, what was the second case study that we had? Case study two was, oh, not if they're letting the original own, not if they, they're the son-in-law who got it repossessed by the courts and are letting the original owner live there. No, the neighbor doesn't have the more compassionate claim here. The question is, what about the renter? Are we compassionate to the renter? The renter doesn't own it, he's renting. So do we say, well, since he's living there, so the renter should get that first right? Or we say the renter, you're, not, you're only renting, you're not, you don't own it. So whatever, you don't, you don't have any more rights than any other third party. That's a question. So we lean toward a more cautious approach and we say, yes, you should have a conversation with the renter. And more often than not, Halacha would say, 
the, to allow the renter to have right of first refusal, but if the renter can't match the price, you're done. That's it. You don't have to deal with the renter anymore. Okay? Um, Mindy made a great point that I made sure to, to and, I, and I, I mentioned it, and I wanted to get back to it. Mindy said, because I think, um, maybe Morris, you asked the question about a relative, if you're getting, if you're buying from a relative. So Mindy wrote in the comments, but isn't the relative a unique opportunity that can only get it from that relative like the gift? And you're right. You're right. I, I gave a bit of a different take on it, but I didn't think of your, because all of this is, it's far, it's all, it's all logic. And your logic is more compelling than what I said. And I agree with you, Mindy. In other words, if this is a deal that you're getting from Mishpacha, so the neighbor can't say, oh, but I'm the neighbor. It's Mishpacha. It's, it's like, it's, a, it's, you know, I'm getting a better deal. I can't get this deal anywhere else in town. It's not like, uh, I, I can get any property. Why do I have to take away the adjoining property? I can't get any property. It's my mishpacha's property. It's my, it's my relative. I'm getting a good deal. Or it's for all those Thanksgiving dinners that we've shared together over the past, you know, four years. So, yes, I, I, I've, I changed my position on this. Um, I changed it already as soon as I saw your... your um, I only saw it after, like a few minutes after you typed it, but I didn't want to go back right then. So well, you, you had said about the gift being a unique opportunity, like you can only get this gift from correct that, from that person, know, right? Gift giver, so that trumps um, anyone else's claim to it. But a relative also should trump that because you can you only have that relative that has that property. Like that, exactly. You can't get that anywhere. Right, and the assumption would be that you're getting a bit of a deal on it, even if you're buying and it's not a gift. So therefore. You can take that and not and not go to the uh, to the to the neighbor now or the neighbor can uniqueness of it uniqueness of it exactly. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that Jewish law, oftentimes, your mileage may vary, but takes into consideration also the the, the ethical and moral consideration. Jewish law is not monolithic and like well that's the law see you later. An approach of that's the law gets you a temple destroyed. That's what destroys the temple. Only sticking to the law, you know, the Ramban says, Nachmani says, a person could be a manuval versus a Torah. A person could be a low life, but not break any laws, right? You can, you can like push up against the contours and not break any laws. You can push up against the boundaries and technically be still kosher, but be very, very questionable, right? And that is not the way we want to be. We want to be not only within the parameters of the law, but also we want to be a mensch. And halacha, Jewish law, is not just the legal component, it's the extra legal, it's the ethical, it's the moral, it's all wrapped in one beautiful package called halacha. Halacha, by the way, is typically translated as Jewish law, but halacha actually means a path a or a way to go. Yes, a way to go, a way to walk, a way to move. Halacha is like uh, movement. It's, it's how we walk through life. It's the guidance, it's Jewish guidance about how to walk through life and live our life. It's not just how to not break the law, it's how to walk through life. And walking through life means through the eyes of God. Eyes of God. Exactly. And walking, walking through life with the, uh, under, the, uh, under the auspices of the eyes of God means to be a mensch. So today we brought many cases, many examples of what it means to be a mensch. If you found something in a place of thieves where the, the owner certainly gave up hope, but you can identify it, give it back. If the poor workers worked so hard and made a mistake and broke something, you could withhold payment, be a mensch, give them some money, right? If you, 
<laughs> at least Rabbah should give the money because he was a, a rabbi and, and a leader of the community. Certainly, it was his requirement to give them some payment. If, I know everyone's thinking about the break, when they broke the chandeliers, I was supposed to pay them also? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna, it's a lawsuit, brother. It's a lawsuit coming down the, coming down the pike over there. All right, I, I get it. But this is, again, this is a, a bit of a different standard. When it comes to property purchasing, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be a special covenant. It doesn't have to be a special agreement, whatever it is. Standard in halacha. Standard Jewish law is you offer the, the, the property, the, first, the right of first refusal, you offer it to the neighbor. The neighbor has a vested interest. With the exceptions, with reasonable exceptions, you know, where it's a gift, where they're not matching the money, where the, who, the other party has a better, has a bigger interest in it as we discussed at length. The moral what of the story... Bad blood? Huh? What is bad blood? Between the neighbor between and the owner? The, the neighbor, let's say... The owner of a house and the neighbor, uh, and, yeah, and the neighbor, yeah, the owner of the house and the renter. Say in one case, the renter was a terrible renter, damaged things. Mm. The landlord was never paid back, and he said, "My dead body, I'm going to sell it to him." Or the same thing with the neighbor. The neighbor let dead trees grow, let trees hit his roof, never took responsibility. He would be told, "You got dead trees, you let it go." There's bad blood. How? How should? No way am I giving my neighbor any benefit. For me, you're still in this house. Yeah, I, without without a clear source, and and this is not good rabbinic practice because rabbinic practices you got to back it up with sources. Without clear sources, my heart tells me that your question, which I mean, it's a question, but it's really more of a of a, of a statement. Like, there's no way that that I, I concur. I I tend I'm leaning toward agreeing with your premise that there would be these would be other exceptions to the rule of of right of first refusal. Exactly, and the point is, it's not a hard and fast rule that the neighbor always gets, gets first dibs. It's based on what's right and what's good, and that changes based on the circumstances. What's right and good in one case is not right and good, is the opposite of right and good in the other case. What's right and good in one case might be the neighbor, because, you know, let him get it, but what's right in the other case, if he's not giving the money or if he harmed the other guy, maybe that's not the right thing to do. So that's, so here we have cases today that, blend law and ethics together, and we see how ethical considerations kind of impact the way the law unfolds. I want to conclude with a bit of a personal um, understanding of this, a very quick personal uh, angle. And that is, in our life, we also have these two elements, if you will. There's the legal, there's, what, there's like a mitzvah, the things that we are obligated to do, and then there's like personal growth, you know, the, the, the extra, extra legal stuff, like the extracurricular activities, like, you know, the, the, the self-growth and the, 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 you know, the morals and the ethics that we, that we take on in our lives. So what step, step one is making sure that the legal stuff is down pat, right? Step two is the extra legal. The extra legal is very important. But of course, the legal is the most important. And that means basically, you know, if we don't feel like we're ready for a mitzvah, like I don't feel like some, such a tzaddik, I'm such a righteous person, who am I to run a seder? I'm not a rabbi. I should run a seder. Run a seder. Make it happen. Don't wait until you feel like you're, uh, you know, a super tzaddik before you do the mitzvah. Just jump in. Just do it and make it happen and, and, and do it. I'll tell you, I'll end with this story. There was once... Um, a college student who met with Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rebbe encouraged him 
to the student when he gets back on campus, I think it was at a break, summer break, whatever, when you, when you return to campus, you should encourage your fellow Jewish students to wrap tefillin. You should be the guy that goes around and helps people wrap tefillin. So the young student tells the rabbi, Rabbi, I have to confess, I don't, put, I, I don't always put on tefillin myself. The rabbi says to him, so why should they lose out because of you? <laughs> In other words, so just because you're not so brave on tefillin, they shouldn't have tefillin. So it's not about you. Make sure they put on tefillin. And that's really the point. The point is, our own perfection, okay, that's extra legal. Let's make sure we got the, we got the legal stuff and then work on the extra legal to, uh, to do what we can, to do what we need to. All right, that concludes tonight's session. Questions or comments, I am open. Mindy, I see you got a question or a comment. Yes, I was just going to apply what we learned about to like today, an example for today's real estate market. Because as you know, I just moved recently yes. a couple months ago. And in the process of moving, um, you do kind of, I mean, you don't have to, like no one's required to let neighbors know. I mean, that just doesn't exist in secular, like, law today but it, it does kind of happen naturally anyway because the neighbors kind of find out when a house is about to get listed or before it gets listed on the market and then they kind of can tell their friends or see if there's somebody that they know in their inner circles that wants to buy the house before it gets listed on the market for the general public to know so kind of the neighbors in the immediate vicinity are kind of the first to know when something's going to come on the market and they can kind of um, get, you know, give, give first dibs to like any friends they have that might be interested. So it, it's not quite the same, but the neighbors do have a little bit of a step up, a leg up. And at least in our, in my little street here, I hear about things like if there's, there's another house coming up for sale and everyone's like, Oh, well, do you know anyone who would be a good fit for our neighborhood? Like, let your friends know, and, you know, we want young families with children or whatever. So, right. like, people kind of are scrambling around before it gets listed on the market because we kind of have the, the inside knowledge that there's a house about to come up on our, on our neighborhood. So it's sort of similar that neighbors sort of get the first. Like, You're saying it's... My son, the realtor, who has three schools, three Jewish schools to pay for. <laughs> right. That's another thing. All right. Please, God, I'm business. I will be able to get this. I'll be able to get this Zoom in the airport next Tuesday as we wait for our flight to Israel. Wow. Nasiatova, safe travels. How beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Wow. Thank you, thank you. Amazing. Safe travels. Six and weeks. it's wow. We'll miss you, but uh, enjoy safe travels, happy travels, and enjoy the Holy Land. And pray for us, because everyone needs, uh, and, and, and for everyone. But ha keep us in mind. All right, any other questions or comments? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Any questions or comments before we close out? Points well taken, Mindy. Thanks for sharing. All right. Say goodnight to Grandma. Oh, that's so nice. Hold on. Your screen went out. There you go. Oh, so cute. Good night, Grandma. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Great to see you all. Have a wonderful evening. See you soon. Take care, guys. Good night. Bye.